All right, welcome to Truth and Fiction. <laughs> Today I am joined by my sister Alina, uh, English major, very thoughtful, intelligent person, and I'm sure she's got lots of great insights to share with us. Hi, I'm Alina. Nice to be here with you, Josiah. Yeah, so today we are talking about one of our favorite movies, and uh, at Alina's particular uh, request, I think I'm hoping that she's got some lots of good things to say, uh, Jurassic Park. Ooh. Yes, the original, the Steven Spielberg, Michael Crichton. Uh, I recently realized it actually is the screenplay was written by Michael Crichton, so the book and the screenplay. Part of why there's a few scenes in there that are just so good and so accurate to the book, too. I mean, the whole thing isn't, but there are portions that are phenomenal. Yeah. So I'm going to give a quick plot summary for those of you who haven't seen the original Jurassic Park in a while. Uh, it starts out with, actually, the first scene is a velociraptor eating a guy while trying to be saved, and it starts this... Uh, it's the beginning of troubles for Dr. Hammond. He's in trouble with his lawyer. The next scene is sort of the lawyer there showing up on Isla Sorna. No, Nubla, Isla Nublar. And then um, you've got, it goes to Hammond and his partner. There's a kind of an ambiguous relationship with him. And uh, it's not Hammond, sorry, Dr. Grant and Dr. Sadler. And Dr. Ha Hammond shows up and invites them to the island. They go to the island. It's really beautiful. You meet another uh, character, Dr. Malcolm, who's this sort of mathematician rock star. They start on some tours. Nothing seems to be going right. They get stuck out in front of the T-Rex enclosure. T-Rex gets free. The Dr. Grant is stuck sort of by fate with the two kids uh, trying to get their way back to the main control room. Of course, the power is out, and due to a series of unfortunate events, the guy who knows how to operate the system is no longer there, and the drama unfolds. Eventually, they all get back together, and they fly off the island safe and sound, minus a couple of people who you didn't really care that much for in the first place. So that's the plot summary. As usual, the works of fiction we're talking about um, while the plot matters, especially in a film, uh, the, the real meat and beauty of these works of fiction are often tied to the characters and their choices of actions and the symbolism playing out on the screen or in the text. So, Alina, I would like to hear first from you. Uh, what do you feel like were some of the major themes explored with this particular film? Um, what's really interesting about Jurassic Park is how extremely uh, philosophical it is. Um, there's a lot of just questioning about um, like nature and how powerful nature is. Uh, that whole idea of um, control and can we control nature? That's a really uh, big theme. Um, corruption i think there's a little bit of like uh ethical corruption with the with the engine and the whole reason things start going wrong is because dennis nedry's who's the geek is like hired um to take the take the um, embryos off the island for profit right, to start right. something else so there's like the beginnings of that sort of yeah, there's some corporate tension, corporate greed that maybe is one of the triggers to the series of unfortunate events. Mm -hmm. I would also, I would also add 
there's a sense of wonder in mm. in the film that is also like wonder and caution mm-hmm. because you approach Jurassic Park and I mean you're the first time you see the Brachiosaurus like walking across the grass and you're like caught up in this wonder this moment of like wow this is amazing how wonderful it is to that have john williams soundtrack oh so jo- good. oh and it captures our our childhood right it captures the just the pure like joy of seeing something that you've always thought was so cool um just in front of your eyes and right. and the music and all that but what is what's the the limit there like to be caught up in all this wonder and then realize that actually they're wild creatures. Man, when you and when you talk about that wonder as a theme, like the sense of wonder, I think about the main characters and the characters that actually uh, you admire. They're the characters who, and we talk about this a lot on this podcast, is, okay, what is it about the good characters, quote-unquote good characters that we admire, and what is it about the despicable ones that we despise? Uh, and it helps sort of deduce out, tease out some of the ways of being that might be preferable uh, through that instinct of admiration. And when you lay that out there, I think of like Dr. Hammond and Dr. Sa- Dr. Hammond, Dr. Sadler, and Dr. Grant, but especially Grant and Sadler, they have a, a very grounded sense of awe. Mm-hmm. So like they have this deep appreciation that like brings Dr. Sadler to tears when she sees this Triceratops. But at the same time, it's it's very grounded. Uh, it's a humble. It's like a humble awe. Whereas yeah. Dr. Hammond is set up, like he, from the first time you see him, he's wearing these all white outfits. He's got this white beard. He's like the classic stereotypical God character. And right. he doesn't, it's like he's got this childlike wonder of like totally. a kid playing with toys. But it's not this mature, humble wonder of a person who re- like realizes they're playing with fire. You know? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. It's a really good way of putting it. I think the childlike um, theme, even I guess I would even say it's a theme. The right. children, mm-hmm. it's a really um, their experience of the world, like set right next to Doctor Grant and set right next to Doctor Hammond, and how there's some comparison in, in there. Yeah, and how Alan Grant, like a little mini uh, storyline with him, is he doesn't like kids at the beginning, right? at all and dr sadler wants kids and there's like a little bit of tension and she teases him about it and he doesn't like the the other you know stupid or silly or whatever they are and annoying and and how and and loud yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) and how that grows uh as he gets stuck with them throughout the adventure (laughs) and it turns into this other uh natural relationship of father-like protection and yeah so i had this uh, i forget where i was listening to a storytelling podcast he was saying how you can't have a story without a change in character so like a story is a tale about a moment that changes a person and if you don't have that change in person you have a poor story and we see that a lot in other characters and other movies that i think are poorly done movies um and i could name a few <laughs> star wars <laughs> but we won't you know go there yet so uh, but yeah, so th- I, someone framed Jurassic Park this way. Like Jurassic Park isn't a story about dinosaurs. Jurassic Park is a story about a man who is stuck 
at first he's a dinosaur. He's a, he's a, a dinosaur digger. Basically, you know, he goes, he, he's kind of a, an antique and he's stuck in his ways. Mm-hmm. He, he can't move forward in the world. He doesn't like technology. He, he wants to just literally be an archeologist and dig up dinosaurs. And the first, the first paleontologist you see who finds the, the piece of, uh, fossilized sap says you'll never get him here on the island he's like me you know he, he likes to dig mm-hmm. and then you know he does you find out he doesn't like technology and then his first meeting is with that kid who's like making fun of the velociraptor and yeah. he basically just scares the pants off of him <laughs> talks to him and yeah. so and you just get this sense that he's just he's stuck there and even the relationship is stuck like he can't move forward in the relationship because of this thing about kids. Mm-hmm. And then of course he goes through these experiences and realize and and the fatherliness, the protective nature just comes up out of him mm. and he ha- and he's transformed. And there's this beautiful scene where he's falling asleep in the tree the first night that he's out with the kids and uh, he's got one under each arm. He's telling him he's going to stay awake all night. And of course he doesn't. But when he falls asleep, his little claw that he used to scare the kid in the beginning falls out of his hand and like lands on the ground. Oh, that's super interesting. I, I never saw it like that. I never saw that symbolism. That's really interesting. And I even think how the reason why it works so well in Jurassic Park as a story mm-hmm. is because that the father nature I'm, I'm putting it together right now i haven't thought about this before just this conversation but um even just the nature that rises up within him that is kind of outside of his control because yeah. he didn't like the kids before right he didn't want to be around the kids before it's he almost was... like a new chaotic element that he didn't realize he had right which is totally like the big i think one of the big themes is nature taking over oh yeah and how yeah, it, totally. it grows like nature finds a way you know? <laughs> life finds a way right. yeah what, what is it nature uh, finds a way uh, yeah, it's life life uh finds a way yeah <laughs> and it's, 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 it's yeah. life okay yeah and so it is it's about um yeah, these like things that, that instinct are, gets fired up yeah and it that's what takes over um ultimately jurassic park that gets run uh what is it can overrun it becomes overrun, overrun. Yeah. and the book even goes even more into that because it goes into how they're watching the population of- right they've got these graphs of like someone who's really paying attention can see that the populations of these animals aren't all one uh, rising age bell curve it's actually like three of them so you could see that they had you know uh, if you'd actually been paying attention to the numbers they could have told they could, would have been able to see that they were actually reproducing in the wild right and they weren't supposed to they were supposed to be female right but because of what they thought what the scientists thought they had under control right they didn't they didn't they totally have under didn't. control they didn't think it all the way through because we're human it's just human error right and the amphibian DNA backfired on them. Yeah, the world's too complicated. That's the way it is. Yeah. You can't control everything. Nope, you just can't. And there's that great conversation with Dr. Hammond, Dr. Sadler. Dr. Hammond's like up all night. So what's funny is, and this is an interesting, the way they set this up, right after Dr. Grant says that he would stay up with the kids all night to make sure the dinosaurs didn't come back, and then he falls asleep, the next scene, it goes to Dr. Hammond, who is awake in the middle of the night, eating food, worrying about his grandkids. Hmm. And Dr. Sadler's having this conversation with him. And he's talking about how, you know, all these errors could have been fixed and next time we'll hmm. have it flawless. Hmm. And and Dr. Oh, yeah. she calls him She calls him out. out. Yeah. Oh, that's one of my favorite scenes. She's like, 
making that ice cream look really good when yeah. she's eating it. But yeah, just like <laughs> the illusion, the control is the illusion. Like yeah. you're still, it's still, what did you say? It's still the flea circus. You know, yes. you're, you're, you're selling something that's not actually there. You don't actually have control over these animals and you can't, and you only think you do, except it's not the kids looking at the flea service. It's you who are fooled. Yeah. It was, oh, it was good. It was a good moment. So really interesting. Good. So good. While we're on the topic of, uh, Sattler and her character. Yeah. I, I'm feminist and I love I love her as just as a, a really fun um, female character. She's a great character. Just really uh, well-rounded and yep. not like in-your-face feminist, but just super, um, uh, yeah, mother, like motherly. She has the mm-hmm. motherly instinct, but she's also very... <laughs> she's still kind of feminine in the midst of being like this fairly aggressive scientist who really cares about what she's doing a lot so yeah. passionate knows what she's yeah, yeah so so strong i love her character and i love i mean i was just i'm just gonna say right off the bat jurassic park the reason why jurassic park is better and will stand the test of time forever is because those characters are simply some of the best characters in film yeah they're in for they're just a single yeah. film how each of them have they each have a story arc like we talked about mm-hmm. um i mean the there it's an ensemble there's no main character i mean alan grant maybe but right. malcolm has has a has some depth to him he's got yeah the the roundedness cuz he's he comes in and he's the the play playboy and right. kind of like you know picking up on Doctor Sattler. I refuse and... to think you know nothing about the laws of attraction. Oh, <laughs> just smooth lines. He is hilarious. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum oh, is Jeff just Goldblum. a comedic genius in that role, and he brings that to life. And then you watch him in like the next Jurassic Park, the Lost World, um, and he's just lost that that charisma that like this character is just completely different i mean uh, so help me with this one jeff golden's character dr malcolm um and dr malcolm malcolm whatever yeah um i i don't totally understand his purpose other than as a as a um as a person who points out this primary theme that runs through the idea of that some systems are so complicated you can't control them and that's kind of his his shtick that's the thing he's always talking about the whole way through this chaos theory the idea that <clears throat> relatively small uh, disturbances in a complex system can have really profound effects down the line right the and butterfly effect the butterfly effect yeah and and you know it's, it's somewhat science fiction and it's not told it's there's there's a lot more going on there than than what the movie presents a little bit of hollywood but but that's the general idea you know so other than pointing that out i don't i fail to see much of what he contributes either to the plot or to the other characters Hmm. so maybe you can help me with that like i love his character he's hilarious He, he he's really interesting and and maybe he's a counterpart to to grant in that Grant is sort of the hyper-conscientious, responsible person who's like all about the work, all about doing things right, getting things done properly. And and he's super hesitant to have kids, maybe because he's 
too much into the idea of control in his own life. Right. You know, maybe he's he's overbalanced uh, on the control side and not enough of the chaos. Right. Whereas Malcolm is obviously overbalanced on the chaos side. Right. For a man. You know, totally. he loves his three kids. He talks about them, how you never, he talks about them as elements of chaos. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And his marriages, what do you say? Right. Always looking for a future Mrs. Malcolm. Yeah. Future ex Mrs. Malcolm. Yeah, right, right. yeah. 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 Totally. I, I've actually never really thought about his purpose. I just love him so much because he's so funny. He is. He's really, really funny. Well, he's all black too, if you notice. So yeah. Hammond's always dressed in all white as this, you know, fake god character, and he's all black, dressed in all black, and and he's got this even dark skin too. Maybe he's a little bit of a foil to Hammond in that sense of his. Uh, Hammond is so. Uh, in the illusion right that he's pulling something off yeah. he's pulling off this miracle and you have spared no expense yeah spare no, no expense and and he's um having fun with it and um yeah he's under this illusion right mm-hmm. and malcolm is like the opposite where he's encountered chaos and he believes in this chaos theory so much that he's kind of given up on control completely oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and you see that like with his cynicism mm-hmm. really comes out and that's kind of something that he's constantly sitting with his hands in his pocket or like his arms kind of crossed yeah he's really so disengaged really disengaged right <clears throat> and he doesn't know how to act because right. he's kind of given up and just surrendered. He gives to... up on his wives. You know, he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't like take responsibility for being able to maintain a marriage. For example, it's like it's just that. Eh, it's just all part of the chaos. You know, it's just gonna yep. be what it is. Just roll with it, and that's how. That's how it is. And even when, um, oh, the T Rex. It's so frustrating when the T Rex attacks the kids, and he he sees that Grant has this great idea with the. Um, what are those the called? Flare. The flare, right? And Grant almost makes the T-Rex go away, right? Right. right? Almost completely by himself. And right. then Malcolm's like, oh, I'm going to be the hero help. and help. And it's almost, oh, that's super interesting. I, you kind of see his, oh, man, you totally see as his character. I'm going to read into this. This is the English major. Do me. it. I'm going deep here. It's probably way too deep. But um, it's classic English major. Um, But... <laughs> His character as someone, if you were to kind of read into his backstory a little bit of giving up, hmm. but the person who gives up is also the person who's been invested the most and disappointed the most. Hmm. And so I think his encounter with chaos and his encounter with... Maybe left him scarred. Yeah. And like you said, disengaged, right. given up, like he's just back there making cynical things. He's not really doing anything anything Mm-mm. right he's just saying he's kind of the debbie he's, downer right, right? He's like you can't do this like you think you can do this but you can't do this you'll see it'll all fall apart right from and the very beginning like from the first time he sees the the diet the brachiosaurus instead of awe and wonder he goes you did it you son of a bitch you did it yeah and like and that's that's the yep. first thing he says yep he's totally like a uh surrendered <laughs> given up on control right yeah and i think that something rises up in him in him in the moment when he sees the kids right um needing help that's true that brings it out of him too yeah now now he needs to uh, you know try to control the situation a little bit it's like i i know exactly what to do now i can take this flare and i can go run and i can get it further away 
and right. be a better distraction. And I can get those kids free. He yells at Grant, says, go get the kids. And he just runs off with a flare. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's almost like that's him underneath all of the layers of the cynicism. Mm. But because he's been like backhanded and like slapped in the face by by chaos, by just, you know, like you can't go do things like that. Like when you're impulsive, you're going to hurt yourself. And so it's almost like he's encountered that so much in his life that he's given up and then right, that and moment, maybe maybe it comes out of him again maybe that's a little bit of his arc i never i never saw that but i, I could I that could very either. well be the case like because that's not something you expect his character to do he was pretty content to sit there in the back of the car i mean he pulls out his flask and he starts drinking and he's you know he's not even he's kind of given up on the day he's given up on the moment yeah he, he's he's checking out but yeah. at the same time, in that moment, he's like, I can make a difference. And he gets mm-hmm. up and does it. And of course, he pays for it a little bit and he gets dragged along through the rest of the movie. But that's a that's a major change as far as a character would go in a moment. And I like that. Yeah. And it goes to show that it's funny. Everyone but the lawyer. I mean, he gets eaten shortly after. So we don't really <laughs> care about him too much. But the everyone but the lawyer has this deep rooted uh desire to protect those two kids right like the kids run in and they love dr Ham- uh, hammond right mm-hmm. you know they, they they come and tackle him grandpa thank you for the gifts and he just loves it he just eats up the affection there, there's this classic familial love there mm-hmm. obviously sadler wants kids and she's warm and friendly to them straight off mm-hmm. and 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 then grant is the only one who who has who isn't aware of that part of him yet who ha- hasn't been awakened even even malcolm will say oh i love kids i got three of them mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, you know, even even he, uh, there, there's that life finds a way. It's, it's a deep rooted need to preserve the youth and to propagate and to continue on. Mm-hmm. Um, that goes deeper in the story than I would have even thought. Yeah, I I have never actually. This is not where I thought the discussion was going to go about Jurassic <laughs> Park. Let's just say that because that is not what I really usually think about. But because you asked about Malcolm, because he is the best character. He is hilarious. It's, <laughs> it's either him or Grant. Sat- yeah. oh, I don't know. They're all so good. Yeah. They're such good characters, yeah. just yeah. period. But yeah, because. Random little factoid. Yeah. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently with uh, Eric Weinstein. Super interesting. He was talking to this other, talking to his wife, I guess. And they were talking about how recently there was a boa constrictor in a zoo who hadn't seen another boa constrictor in many years who laid eggs. And they did not think it was possible for a snake to uh, reproduce without a sexual partner. So there might actually be this, even, even in more species than we realized, the ability to reproduce without a sexual partner. Okay, so when you As said he saw he saw the python, it's not like in the biblical sense. <laughs> not in the biblical no, sense. Okay. No, okay. No. It was a, it was an article. Uh, I'd like to find it, but I'll probably dig it up. But it was some zoo uh, isolated boa that that ended up reproducing it, and no one expected it because they should have never without a partner. Without a partner, yeah, they're fairly confident it was without a partner. So they they've taken a couple. It was a number of eggs were produced, and they've taken a couple of them, and they were killed for to to experiment on them and then if a few have are still developing and they're going to find out what the heck it was see if it's if it's either maybe it's a a combination of the gene of the snake's own two gametes or it might be 
sort of a self-cloning thing. They're not really sure what the mechanism is, how that could even be possible. Wow. But yeah, to think that there's still that possibility right there latent in the genes is fascinating. You know, uh, could have told you so. <laughs> they had it back in the 90s. I say <laughs> this is what Jurassic Park did to me as a kid is developed that like, well, you never know. <laughs> you never know. You never Life know. finds a way. Life of... Finds a way. <laughs> That's a great meme, too. It's the best meme. Okay, on another light note, since yeah. we're kind of taking a little break from the deep conversation, um, when I think when they were coming out with Jurassic World, uh, yeah, the more new recently, one, yeah, the Chris Pratt one. one, yeah, was it Jurassic World or the second one? And they were talking about, uh, what was it? What was it that, um, Jeff Goldblum was coming back to reprise a character. Maybe it was talking about the third one, but it was a couple years ago. I don't remember. Anyway, but there's this great meme where they took... <laughs> oh, I think I remember the one you're talking about. Oh, my God. Um, they took Ian Malcolm's, like, moving chest in that scene, the random he, scene where he has no he's shirt laying, on. Laying back against the bench because his leg is hurt and he, they're in the bunker and he's like talking. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I, I think seen. maybe there, it's that really tense scene where um, Sattler's Dr. Sattler's trying, trying to get to, the power back on. Yes, yeah. and they're talking on, on the walkie-talkies and he's just like super intense, but it's also strangely sexual because he's <laughs> like, has his bare chest and sweaty and I mean, Jeff Goldblum in the 90s. Yeah, he's a good-looking guy. Good guy, and he knew it. <laughs> and and they had that with Alan Grant, um, that cut out from where Alan Grant is leaning on the Triceratops as it's breathing. Oh yeah, and he's like, you know, like so happy and smiling. <laughs> and so they cut out Alan Grant and put it on Ian Malcolm's chest. <laughs> Every time he's like breathing, it was just like. Oh, that's funny. I don't think I saw that one. I think it was when it when they announced that Jurassic World was coming out. They're like, oh, the gotcha. new one, right? Someone just being real excited about it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. To to drag it back into some more symbolic um, conversation, there is a uh, there's a line that Hammond says when they're sitting around the table after after they get their first introduction, they're getting ready to eat dinner before they go out the next morning on their tour. And um, he says, uh, Hammond is, is making, he's trying to defend himself against the three scientists who are all saying what he's did is a bad idea because how could he possibly control all the variables that are going on here? Right. You know, they're, uh, this species has been extinct for millions of years and now they've been crashed back together. You know, who knows what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. Well, Hammond says, how can we stand in the light of discovery and not act? Mm. And I think this is a, um, this is a really big philosophical question that the, that the, the movie doesn't entirely leave answered. No. Because, because it's a valid question. So Sam Harris talks about, this idea of the black box, and uh, I'm gonna go take a little bit of rabbit trail. Sam Harris. Sam Harris is a ethical uh, specialist. That's oh. what he does. He talks about ethics, and he has this book uh, called The Moral Landscape okay. um, that lays out about a ways to think about ethics and and the ability for there to be lots of potentially positive moral ways to live. It, he fights back against moral relativism while still allowing for the diversity of social norms. 
Um, and it's, it's an interesting book. But so uh, I was going somewhere with that. Oh, yeah. Okay. So Sam Harris um, talks about how throughout history, we as human beings have been sort of pulling balls out of this black box of scientific innovation. We've just been making discoveries one after the other after the other. And, and so far, virtually all of these discoveries that we've pulled out, you know, lasers and uh, learning theory of relativity. And, Sharks with lasers. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, whatever. Like there's all these, uh, like battery tech. And there's mm-hmm. all these discoveries that for the most part have only resulted in really positive changes mm-hmm. on the whole, right? The internet just transformed the world in an incredibly positive way. And we've mm-hmm. yet to pull out the thing that has the lethal combination of easy access and highly destructive. So we got kind of close mm. when we pulled out the idea of, of uh, atomic fusion. I mean, that was a, that was a huge discovery, or atomic fission, um, right? And and this discovery allowed us to create the most powerful weapons of all time, which brought us to the existential risk of nuclear holocaust. Like that is a real current risk in our world. But there's at least the barrier that they're not easy to get, right? So it's it's mm. still really complicated and expensive, and basically no one can just put together a, a, a huge you know bomb. But someday we might discover, we might pull something out of this black box in, in our in our unquenchable thirst for discovery mm-hmm. where it might be an irreversible thing. It might be a technology that is so accessible and yet so consequential and that what do you do? How do we hold ourselves back from that potential? And this particular movie argues that maybe our ability to manipulate DNA could be that thing. Hmm. Uh, and there's to be honest to be honest what comes into my mind is we've already done it oh yeah what do you think is that this is gonna get this is gonna get interesting um the industrial revolution what about the industrial revolution the massive expanse of uh industry and production machinery and how it moved ultimately life from farm and the The agricultural agricultural culture uh, for the lack of right it's been a while since i've been in a a intellectual discussion but anyway um moving from that into ultimately city production um wealth hyper specialization concentration of wealth yeah yeah the way and and how that moved our western civilization and our advancement into where we are now yes it was like a major socioeconomic shift for sure huge and and how do you feel like that's been the thing that will doom us i think i think what happened was just we we became from the agrarian to the mechanized to the yes well to like production okay so our goal wasn't like used to be um survival right, right. which it's very I mean, arguable why people that's why the industrial revolution is arguably a good thing right, right. is we that past the survival barrier in many ways in a lot of circumstances right but in that we also introduced the plague of corporate capitalism that gets very corrupt and we end up with the workers who are um the, i don't 
like I said, we're getting into some some yeah, pretty some political, political uh, stuff, and I, we don't have to agree with that. But like for me, ultimately, what I look at is I see we lost we lost something and started to value um, production over yeah, people so, and pace so, of life. Somewhere along the line, we when some point after the after we were able to no longer be always concerned about producing our next meal there there started this it was somewhere along the exponential growth curve of production to where now we as as humans especially in the developed world produce insane amounts and in the process consume insane amounts and and sort of the, it's a, it started a a self-perpetuating cycle of production and consumption that is perhaps unsustainable <laughs> I, yeah, I would definitely, I'm of the, the thought that we have uh, produced ourselves into some pretty nasty habits that yeah. are are filling and wrecking our oceans. And wreck, like, I, I, For sure. I totally prescribe to that. Have um, you read Steven thought. Pinker's book, uh, Enlightenment Now? No. Okay. Well, it's, it's some interesting perspectives on that sort of thread, talking about how while there we are creating our own existential threats we as a whole as humanity sort of like on the average are uh significantly better off in many air quotes well-being markers hmm. so things like infant mortality and starvation that was the first thing that and, i yeah. thought of right so like things like that it's and a trade-off yeah average well it's i mean most would i would imagine most would argue that you could trade quite a bit for dramatically reduced infant mortality and dramatically reduced death by disease and dramatically lengthened life and uh, dramatically increased uh, wealth, I suppose. I mean, somewhere in there, there's a line where wealth is more wasted than benefited and, and obviously could be distributed in a more equal manner if if there was just more generosity at the top. Because, But, but on the whole, even at the poorest places... Uh, like Africa itself now has less infant mortality and, and a lower death rate than Europe did not even a hundred years ago. Right. So it's, you know, there's some of the worst places in the world are still are better off even while the, and obviously the, the best places, quote unquote, the best places in the world are, have never been more, more better. <laughs> I don't know. I mean like more comfortable, I should say. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of values neutral there. Right. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that is the... That's the argument, I That's guess. the argument. Yeah, what is, what is like, as our, definitely, like, our very Western Americanized culture has valued, um, has valued profit and valued wealth, valued this idea of... Yeah, individual success. Yeah, yeah, and success defined by... By the individual. By, well, hopefully, hopefully, but... I I see by wealth, by uh, accomplishments in certain areas, and that's a very different take on values. If you even just go even to the Eastern Hemisphere, they're looking at a different set of values of um, philosophy and <laughs> like like hmm. their their version of success isn't as yeah, not tied as... around accomplishment it's it's tied around um inner peace 
balance. Uh, well, yeah, it, some of the religious uh, avenues of the of the East, yeah. The Buddhist, but you can even go Middle East. They're they're <laughs> agrarian, ultimately agrarian still in a lot of ways, and they they have, I mean, the touches of Western civilization as well, but their values are maybe more family, maybe more religious, and that's what they that's what they see as valuable um, compared to what we've got here in America, which we have an identity crisis here to be sure. And I don't, I don't think we really know what to value anymore, especially given that many of the people like, I think there's a, there's a strong nihilistic bent here now because kids have grown up with their parents under relatively significant affluence and only, only to realize that their parents aren't happy and, and then them as their kids don't feel like they have even any hope of even achieving the level of, quote unquote success that their parents do. Yeah. And so they're, they're, you know, there definitely is a, a bit of an, a bit of a f- focus crisis because, you know, even success doesn't, they're not buying it in the same way. Right. And I, I would say too, we're learning from all of that. I think that we're, we're, I hope so, but I, I'm not convinced. <laughs> I think that, Yeah. I don't know. Maybe we're just on the pendulum going swinging back the other way now and from from the valuing over too much the production and the mm-hmm. wealth and um, the American dream and then swinging back now to we don't we completely reject that and reject any sort of um what is that profitability or any sort of money based success marker. Yeah, so I feel like that's I feel like people's rejection of that as kids is is more a result of their feeling like they can't attain it because the climate and the the socioeconomic conditions that they're getting into after getting out of college is so radically different than their parents and the boomers before them that it is it's it's way harder to attain that kind of success than it ever was before. Um, the, the job market, obviously the, the income has, hasn't increased the same rate as housing. And like, there's a lot of things that make it more difficult for, for that sort of same level of, yeah, I'm gonna get to 65 and retire and live off a hundred a year. It's just not as attainable, uh, under, under the old story of go to school, get good grades, go to college, get a good job, pay off your college and be better off. It's just, that doesn't work. That formula doesn't work. And so I think they're disenfranchised or disenchanted at the idea of even having American, the American dream because they can't even imagine affording kids because they can't buy a house in their 30. Mm. So I I could see it. I could see that being a reason why now they're trying to, they're trying to find some other way to justify their hard earned efforts because they've been working their butt off for 20 years now you know, ever since starting school, uh, pursuing something that they're realizing they may never attain, at least not via the, the conventional means. And now they're wondering, well, what what is worthwhile? What is attainable? And and it's not what my parents had, and I can't get what they want or they're doing anyway. Mm. So uh, there's some reaction against that. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I've always kind of seen it as... I, I think it can be both. I think it, yeah, can it could absolutely be both. Be both. Um, but I've seen it also as they see the the failure of ultimately that's not satisfying. Right. Ultimately, the, you know, saving uh, money, working your your 
butt off to retire at a certain point with a certain amount and then that's when you live and you go travel and it's just like you know so many so many of our generation are calling you know bs on that one yeah um but but i think you do have it is unattainable right now that's it's and i think virtually yeah people it's really difficult yeah hitting that reality what do you think uh what do you think jurassic park has to say about worthwhile endeavors like things that might actually be worth striving for um on the whole jurassic park yeah just to bring it back a little bit because i think there there's a couple things that come to mind um in the midst of the warnings against you know sort of runaway scientism that keeps discovering uh more and more dangerous things i I think there is a, a message of of things that are worth sacrificing for hmm. um why don't you tell me what you think because i'm not <laughs> i'm coming up blank right yeah now. <laughs> yeah we'll think about it for a minute. the one of the the more obscure one that comes to mind is is actually a line from hammond uh, when he was talking about that flea circus mm-hmm. and he says i wanted to show them something that wasn't an illusion something that was real that they could see and touch you know and, and that was not devoid of merit so he mm-hmm. felt like it was worthwhile he was driven by this idea of giving people something that is real like not fake and mm-hmm. and he was willing to do the work and the exp- make the expense and you know in, in his mind it was worth any expense to be able to show people something real and, right. and unique and powerful sort of to get them in touch with chaos and and i think that's kind of fun because that's mm-hmm. that's a little bit of what I feel like that's kind of what God does in some sense. Like he, uh, him as this sort of fake God or sort of human set himself up as a God character mm-hmm. um, would, you know, maybe, I, I think maybe the, the movie is implying that part of what the, the nature of reality is such that it presents us with things that are real and it is worthwhile to confront those real things in a real way and to deal with them as best you can. And that's kind of what, mm. what um, Grant does, right? He takes on this real challenge and this thing that fell in his lap. You know, he's confronted with danger and he, he takes it on and deals with it as best he can. Whether that was before when he was out in the real world digging up bones and trying to discover, trying to deduce what the nature of uh, prehistoric reality was. And then when he was there in the park trying to figure out how to survive in this, in this new world, he was taking something that was real and trying to make the best of it. Hmm. And I think that, like Hammond says, it's that's worthwhile. That's not without merit to present something real to the world. You know, he felt like a he felt like a fool, or not like a fool, like a like a fraud with the flea circus. Mm-hmm. But that was where he started. Right. You know, and he's trying to he was trying to go bigger and bolder and more real. And while he still can't, while trying to maintain control, but he can't. He realized mm-hmm. he can't. And I and one of the key differences between the book and the movie is that actually Hammond dies in the book. Right. He doesn't make it off the island. Right. Which is, I think, is a, a fairly significant difference. You know, in this Absolutely. movie, it doesn't play out quite right that he survives, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, in terms of his character and his mistakes, he, he, I feel like he, as a man who spares no expense for this, this incredible endeavor, it was right for him to go down with it. Absolutely. He does not pay the cost <laughs> at all. He gets out stark raving free in right. a lot of ways. His grandkids survive. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe he's got a bruised conscience, conscience, but then the next movie, he's back to his old kind of 
you know, like. <laughs> right. Yeah, he gets, he gets another shot, a shot at it, which is a, a gracious way to frame it, I think. And maybe it plays better for the screen because it's hard to kill off your God character. But He's uh, so likable and yeah, fun. Right. And so it's hard to to see a, you know, it would be hard to see him it been hard to pay see him. the cost, <laughs> go down with the ship, so to speak. But everyone else did. Right. A lot of people around him did. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the the first guy to go is the lawyer. And it cracks me up because he's the one who's, because of the investors, because of the money, he's supposed to be investigating that place for being too dangerous. Right. And the first dinosaur he sees, his first line is, we're going to make millions off this place. Yes. You know, it, just because he's supposed to be protecting the financial interests of his investors and because that's the main focus, mm-hmm. he's immediately distracted from what is actually, what everyone else sees, which is the glaringly obvious thing of, we can't control this. Mm-hmm. No one should be here. <laughs> yeah. I think I remember in the book, um, a line of, I think it might've been Muldoon, who's the, uh, the, shoot her shoot her yeah, the, the, the raptor uh, not the, tamer the ranger but, guy yeah um he said something about these kids should not be here right like no one should be here and the same with uh samuel L. jackson's character in the book they're all saying the same thing everyone who knows anything is like yep. this is not it's not safe it's not, not ready safe. yeah yeah it was it's a powder keg just waiting to crack and uh, it only took that that one thing, that one sort of you know, black swan event. Another great book if you ever get a chance to read it. Mm-hmm. One little black swan event of a little uh, unscheduled power outage because of a disgruntled employee who wants more money. You know, right. I suppose there's some credit to what you're saying here about you know, the the downfalls of society being at least in part triggered by greed. I mean, Jurassic Park. There's at least at least two major faults that happen. Yes. <laughs> the, yes. the lawyer dies very quickly and uh, and presumably all of his investors' money, but also uh, everyone, obviously everyone's lives are put in danger uh, with the desire to, to push this ahead too fast, which is generally a, a you know, money-related desire. If you got all right. the time, if you got all the money in the world, you're not too worried about doing things slow. Right. You know, you'll get it done right. I think Michael Crichton, um, and he also wrote Timeline, Right. which um, was also made into a movie, which I never read the book. The movie was really fun. But he does, it's the same kind of conflict with technology that the technology goes a little wrong because of something that that happens with a greedy employee. And like, there, I think it was a grenade. I haven't seen it in a while, but it, yeah. it, it's a very similar kind of like sabotage where the greed sabotages yeah, the good is intentions. the trigger point, yeah, that sabotages the the whole uh, heroic journey or whatever, right. the whole journey and the whole idea. Sort of initiates the heroic journey by collapsing everything into chaos. It spoils the wonder. It spoils right. the innocence. It, as soon as that's introduced, I kind of, I see that as a theme with Michael Crichton stuff is mm-hmm. that um, as it's, those are the characters you despise yeah. instantly and he doesn't hide it. I mean- the lawyer i mean (laughs) (laughs) the lawyer is the worst and and his death like so fitting it's so and it's so like 
Just goes and runs and hides to the toilet when the kids are going to be in danger. He leaves them. He's the only other one. See, he's kind of like Grant in that. He doesn't have any attachment to the kids. Mm-hmm. But instead of jumping to their aid or helping or whatever, he just runs off and hides. Yeah. yeah. And even Hammond doesn't like the lawyer. Right. No one right. likes even, the lawyer. Even, even though when he's on the, his side. Yeah. He's like, so all what you're telling me is all of you are yeah. are against this. And all I have on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer. <laughs> right. You know, the lawyer's like, thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's the his portrayal of any sort of greed mm. uh, is totally lambasted, like. Yeah, it's like it's funny as you can even you can you can forgive Hammond because you could tell it's not about the greed for him. Like it's not about building a park to generate all this money. It's building a park. His whole goal was unto something beautiful and greater, providing something real and tangible and new and exciting to kids. Like yeah. he, the lawyer was talking about charging people ten thousand dollars a day to show up on the island, mm-hmm. and Hammond's like, "No, I want, I want this. I want everyone to be able to come and see this. Like, yep. it's his dream is to provide this sense of awe and wonder and this experience to people." And, uh, you know, spare no expense. Spare no, he doesn't care. It's not about the right. money for him. And so right. you can almost forgive him for this ultimately bad idea because because of the, the intentions behind it and the heart. Right. Um, I am thinking right now a little bit about we haven't even talked about the dinosaurs much at all. Right. Well, the dinosaurs are kind of secondary. It's really interesting to me. I mean, that's, to me, yeah, it goes to show how Jurassic Park is just, it goes so much deeper than you think it goes. Than the visuals. I've heard that there's only 45 seconds total of T-Rex on screen. It's like. <laughs> it's enough. It's enough. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. Someone fact check it. <laughs> but but it, when you think about this movie, T-Rex is hardly on screen at all. And that's why they were able to do most of it with an animatronic. Which is right. part of why it felt so real and amazing. Still does. Oh, it's so good. Still does. My lord. And Velociraptors still haunt me in my dreams. <laughs> yeah, they still chase me in my dreams from time to time, too. Yeah. It's always one of those things where I can run, but I can't I can't really hide for long because it'll just get, it'll break whatever's around me or it'll, it'll get me. Yeah. Feeling. Don't go into the long grass. Don't go into the tall grass. Yeah, that's the second one, huh? Yeah, that's the other movie. don't do it. And don't steal their eggs. <laughs> don't steal. Damn it, Billy. And that's the third one. That's right. And that's right. the third I one. And again, the... and it's greed. a greed. It was another greed yeah, thing. Yeah, it's Michael Crichton had a vendetta against greed. Yep. And this is why I think Jurassic World freaking sucks now. And the way that the direction they're taking it is because all of a sudden they're like, let's make it a military thing. We're going to, you know, strap strap cameras on these velociraptors and send them down, you know, Al-Qaeda tunnels and blah, blah, blah. Like, I honestly didn't even see the last one. Is that, is that I, like okay, a main so plot I haven't, of it? <laughs> <laughs> That's Jurassic World, which in I loved Jurassic World when it came out. I love Chris Pratt. I love... It was adventurous and fun, and it wasn't too spooky, scary. And it, to me, I enjoyed it. Yeah, um, it's kind of a fun adventure movie. Yeah, so I saw it a lot. <laughs> more than i should have um but i look back on it now and i think oh my god it's so like they just took what jurassic park was and what they thought people liked about it mm-hmm. and then ran with it so right more dinosaurs bigger teeth more dangerous 
you which know, ironically lots is of what they talk they like say that right they want bigger teeth you want a, you yeah. know <laughs> and you created a monster and ironically they're you know what is that called criticizing themselves a little bit right. but it's they're unaware that they're doing it and that's just goes to show to me is like anyway but yeah they militarized they're trying to militarize dinosaurs yeah just it was kind of a silly plot thing that didn't weird. make a whole lot of sense to me it either. was so weird i and i did not see fallen kingdom which is right, the second neither. one but it looked like some sort of greenpeace propaganda so i didn't even watch it I could I, be wrong. I, I, I haven't seen it. All I remember don't seeing was volcano, yeah. and I was like, "Well, that's kind of cool. They're out running a volcano. Can you <laughs> <What>? do that?" <laughs> uh, I want to. I want to bring it back to one other kind of fun thing. That Go for it. It's not fun. This is. Uh, it brings it back to one oh, of no. the more ethical decisions okay. and and dilemmas within this whole story, right? So there's this great scene where they're talking about dino DNA. And uh, it's the little, remember the DNA guy gets up on the screen. How can and, you forget him? And they, yeah, right. And they break out of the ride and go check down the actual scientist. And it's really interesting. And, um, and so it kind of breaks down how they, how they got here. But we're, we're actually in a place now, um, scientifically, I mean, with that, that altering DNA, altering genetic material at a fairly precise level, like being able to modify specific genes is actually possible. Now, this movie is incredibly forward thinking. At the time it was right. written, it wasn't it wasn't even possible. We could you could very very imprecisely play with or break up DNA and you could look at it. Um, I think this was even before the human genome project where they started sequencing it and so this is the very most cutting edge of science was just starting to dabble in the idea of maybe thinking you could do this someday. But actually we have the people are talking about trying to bring back uh, woolly mammoths using some of these techniques huh. uh, because we have fairly well-preserved mammoth DNA within their hair, things that have been in a permafrost for a long time. But basically our, our ability to manipulate genetic material is unparalleled. It's also more accessible than ever before. Right. The technology that it takes to do this is really cheap. Basically, any college laboratory can afford it. Like wow. It's, it's a relatively wealthy person could buy some of this material and start playing with their DNA in their house. And this is, I don't know if you knew that. No, you're giving me a surprise look. Yeah. No, it's, no, it's not a surprise. It's, it's the uh, person who's seen Jurassic Park so many times <laughs> going, uh, oh lord we're all gonna get we eaten didn't by learn we didn't learn anything <laughs> everyone needs to watch jurassic park right now right. and slap that silly thought out of your head go ahead so there's this just prophetic moment in the movie where the it was at the very end this velociraptor is chasing them when they're up in the ceiling and the velociraptor looks up and as a a projection of the of the computer screen oh, yeah, displays on the the skin of the dinosaur and it's the DNA sequence it's ATGGATG and yeah. it's, it's the, the DNA letters and i just thought that was so brilliant to huh. have this visual representation of what actually was going on that that the threat to humanity in and symbolically in this picture was this velociraptor but the threat to humanity as a whole the big picture is this ability to manipulate our, our the base code of life, hmm. because what we can do with that is, I mean, it's it's almost unfathomable what we can do when it comes to modifying our own DNA. Right. And on one hand, it's like the it's the key to solving virtually all of genetic based diseases. Right. Especially already we're we're getting to a place where we can cure single point mutation diseases, 
And those are kind of the easiest ones. And there's a lot of them that are some are horrible, horrible diseases that mm-hmm. we should be able to, to cure, like actually, and not only cure, but be able for the person to not even pass on the gene. Right. And, and for their kids Eradicate to have the cure. Eradicate it completely. Yeah, completely. And, and that's you know, amazing. Who would have thought that was possible? Wow. But at the same time, we're also engineering mosquitoes so that they can't reproduce, so that they mate, have two cycles, and, and then they die, and they produce infertile young or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so there's ways that we're actually playing with genetic code in a way that self-propagates mm. that really plays back to this idea of the chaos theory in that as soon as we introduce an alteration in the genetic code, and in such a way that it can self-propagate, which is what we're able to do now, um, there's no knowing what that's going to look like down the line. Right. That, that could be the butterfly flap that changes the weather in New York, you know, 50 years down the line or four but, generations yeah, later. Yeah, but we don't instead know. of, what, what's that, uh, instead of, oh, day after tomorrow, right. it's zombies, it's okay? Zombies. That's, what, that's what I'm hearing <laughs> in the future. We're looking at zombies. Good Lord. But do we but do we inhibit the progress of this technology right. for the sake of this potential risk when we know that for certain we have incredible benefits? Right. And that's a huge that's a huge it's question. Huge question. You know, how since ancient honestly, since ancient Greece, the Prometheus. Right. It's it is. It's kind of the Prometheus question. Do we keep people from building fires because we're gonna burn down cities? Yeah. Icarus fly too high to yeah. this, in the sky, but then melt your wings. Like yeah, it, it it's, it's a mythological problem. This isn't a certain archetypical arch- archetypal problem. Well, and I think this is where science fiction, just in general in literature, yeah, is that is the, really useful. It's super useful. People play out their fears through science fiction, and it's amazing how um, often it's accurate. <laughs> From yeah. like, you know, way back when and how, um, like you said, Jurassic Park is so forward thinking like this yeah. was complete lunacy, like ridiculous when it was first produced or first uh, published in the early 90s or late 80s. I don't remember when Michael Crichton first published it, but I, yeah, it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. But it was still pre a lot of, I mean, it was definitely pre CRISPR, um, which is that, that CRISPR-Cas9 is that... Uh, tool that they use to edit gene edit the genome more okay. precisely yeah, yeah. before that yeah before i mean in a lot of almost before the boom of the internet right or maybe at the beginning of it um but find out right now but anyway it, go ahead um what was it going 1990 1990 yeah, okay so it's not quite before the internet but but still at the very baby very baby beginning stages yeah i mean it's it is it's it is a concern though i yeah. i i absolutely think that um we don't i take malcolm's i take malcolm's perspective yeah. where he's you know he says your your scientists were so concerned about whether they could they didn't stop to think if they should right mm, yep that we could- know who is actually asking these questions of um what is what does this mean for five years from now, 10 years from now, 15, um, what is this going to do to our, um, yeah, to humanity to completely eradicate all flaws in our genetic code? And what, you know, like, what is anyone who's really asking that question? And um, should they 
should they regulate it? I, you right. know, like it's a big and question. Who decides gets yeah, to regulate gets to it? That's, I mean, that is the probably the question. corporate people, you know, yeah, <laughs> the people with right. money and power. And then that's yeah. Yeah, here we go again. Yeah, right. And that's Michael Crichton, <laughs> probably why he wrote Jurassic Park. But right, so but you certainly don't want the lawyers of the world, the the lawyers who see, who are representing the interests of the investors. You don't want them to be your primary ethical uh, experts that you are consulting about whether or not you should do something. Right. You know. But even like, how big of a trope is it for the scientists? Like I think about doctors Dr. Ock, um, the lizard guy in uh, Amazing Spider-Man, who they're like, we're on the verge of this like great breakthrough. And it's right. this great, and it's complete, um, it's a complete ambition for good. Like, right. like especially Spider-Man 2, Doc Ock is like one of the best villains, in my opinion, in super superhero movie. Because he's so, you like him. You see him, he's this good guy. He cares about humanity. And mm-hmm. he gets overtaken by this, his technology. and right. It's the tainted ambition. ambition. The tainted ambition that that is so flawed. And I think in this one, what's interesting is that Hammond doesn't actually have the tainted ambition. He, he's naive. Completely you know, naive. He thinks he can, he can handle it. The, he thinks he can keep a control on it. And, and he's probably the closer to anyone would be able to because he's built his way up from... from literally flea circuses to more and more attractions more and more uh significant endeavors and he's been successful right and so he is naive but at the same time his ambition isn't tainted yet yeah i think he's the most innocent hearted childlike hard person like that's why you like him so so much he's optimistic he's but it's not enough it's not even that that tainted optimistic ambitious person who is who's naive is too easily victimized by those with uh, less benevolent ambitions. Uh, InGen, you know, right. Nedry, people take advantage of him and they did. And that was, ult- that was the trigger to the destruction. It wasn't right. the only cause of it that that place was poised for failure. It was, it was doomed, but, right. but that was what, the camel that broke the, the or the straw that broke the camel's back at least if not more right you know that was a huge factor yeah big blind spot yeah yeah so it's really really interesting um who yeah who decides what to regulate how to regulate it should should we regulate mm-hmm. it is it is it better to kind of go off of people's good intention of um, well, this is going to better humanity. It's going to get rid of all these diseases. Think of all the things that this could accomplish and not think about. Right. The... Or do you listen to the pessimists? Yeah. You know, and, and think about the worst case scenarios. Think about the the genetic alteration that propagates into the future. And, and you think about the accidentally eliminating of a key species at the bottom of the food chain that causes the collapse of of entire ecosystems you know that that sort of thing is hard to foresee right bats love mosquitoes you get rid of mosquitoes they wouldn't have had a dang coronavirus (laughs) (laughs) we get rid of the bats never mind yeah we should have got rid of mosquitoes long ago (laughs) never mind but yeah yeah, it's um it is it's a butterfly effect that's a big that's a big ethical question that's kind of sam harris's that's his expertise Hmm. so he he makes the point that um 
companies and governments should be accountable to ethical experts. You know, he's fights strongly against right. uh, moral relativism in, in that he says there are there is not an infinite number of ways to be a moral human being or to hmm. live morally. There's a relatively finite number that are constrained by the properties of, of suffering and uh, what's his, he uses another term that's sort of the opposite of suffering. And I think he calls it well-being. And so if you constrain moral choices to the pursuit of collective well-being and, and say anything that leads towards collective suffering essentially is, is immoral. And he uses that as sort of a, a basic grounding for a, a non-religious-based ethical framework. And, mm. and he, this is, he spent his life um, developing expertise on making moral decisions. Mm. And there's a whole realm of philosophy about, about making moral decisions. It's called ethics. So there's there definitely are people struggling with these questions, and there are some people who have spent the time and effort and the sweat and earned the right to have something to say about uh, these decisions. And and it is my hope that people pushing the limits of science would pay attention. Right. Do they? I don't know. I don't know. Well, it reminds me of that documentary that just came out that's really trending right now on Netflix. What was that called? is it the social network the social is? network i think yeah um yeah like, all those people from the different social media sites who like were talking about what was going on behind the scenes right yeah. how we have now we now have right phones technology that it has like really influences our lives heavily and takes over many people's lives heavily um in ways that we couldn't have foreseen. And we exactly, could not have foreseen. And the the drivers behind it, the influencers behind it, are people who are just trying to make profit. Yeah, just trying to make a little money on the side. Yeah, so they're not, they don't have the, uh, our well-being, our ethics, our, um, what makes us good human beings. They're not asking those questions at all because that's not their job their job is to maximize company profits exactly yeah and that's and that's a that's a struggle i mean at least in the at least the benefit of a capitalistic society there is the um the balancing force of public dissonance so as the more people realize that they don't like what's happening to them the more those sorts of uh, abuses will be kind of held in check I'm a little bit concerned in the case of social networking, and this is a little bit of a bunny trail, but the the monopoly these companies have on the idea, because the idea of a global network that allows people to communicate uh, relatively free of interference is a profoundly good idea. Uh, but there's it's it's beyond it's gone so far beyond that to this system that distributes information to people who most want it and it tends to distribute the most inflammatory information because that's what keeps people engaged and if you keep people engaged then they make more money right. and so it's created this system that's not simply a networking tool it's this system that propagates inflammatory information for good or for bad or for ugly or whatever it looks like. And right. that's gotten real messy in ways that we wouldn't have expected because right. it's just driven by profits in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that's, 
yeah, there, there, there needs to be some check to that perhaps because these consequences are happening so much faster than, I mean, the consequence of, of social media is happening faster than any of our legislation can adapt to it because they're all too old and right. senile and don't know how to use it, don't know, understand it. They're so far behind the ball. Right. And then you have the concern of the kids who were born into this right? and what, what they're going to grow up into and what kind, what effects. Well, and the the ability of the people who control these networks to influence public uh, opinion and public uh, what they know to, right. to influence what ends up in front of people's eyes on a way that is in a way that is more dramatic than than any time in human history like right. facebook has access to more eyes than any media source has ever had ever in the in the history of the world. Right. And so they have in many ways become more powerful than any world government. And and yet there's some corporate entity with relatively few people who have any who have no uh, or very little they don't they don't answer to anyone essentially. Right. Yeah. Right. And they're not concerned about ethics because it's not their job. Well, and they're, <laughs> I mean, they're raised primarily in a, in a anti-religious, relatively ethically devoid society. I mean, right. the, the college climate that these people who these tech leaders come out of is largely void of ethics entirely or not void of ethics necessarily but void of of any ethical grounding yeah and there there is some exploration of ethics in in the social sciences but it's fairly minimal right um and and many of these tech people wouldn't have even had to take those classes or wouldn't have cared and it wasn't their expertise there it's likely led by people who are just don't care that much about it yeah so we're Spooky. definitely in some icarus situations here Spooky. right yeah. and so there's you know maybe that's one of the big takeaways of Jurassic Park is, um, you know, it's important to establish a personal ethic, uh, even for the sake of like, for, for example, if Hammond, if Hammond had a grounding deeper than just his desire to share an experience, you know, if, if he had more ethical grounding, then perhaps he would have been able to make better decisions. You know, Grant as our sort of Grant and, and Sadler as the heroes of the story, their their grounding seemed to be in, um, I don't know, they kind of got dragged along. You know, they, right. it, it doesn't seem like anyone in that story really has any particularly deep ethical grounding. Um, and, and perhaps the whole mess could have been avoided if someone did somewhere along the line. Right, we have to ask the question, like you had Muldoon, like I said, mm -hmm. Who you when you meet him in the movie, he's like they should be killed the lot of them. Talking about the Velociraptors, right. he doesn't he, he doesn't, doesn't trust them at all. all. He doesn't think it's a good idea to have them. Period. Right. And he he sees it, he knows it. And where was he? Where is he in the decision making process? Why mm -hmm. didn't he draw a freaking boundary and go? I can't be a part I of quit. this. I quit. No. After that, after he, you know, the, that other worker slipped through his fingers in the very first scene of the movie. Yeah, he should have totally. And right. and that would, I mean, the best thing about drawing boundaries like that is it puts it back in the person's face. It's right. like... It brings the responsibility back to the person who it belongs. Right, the accountability. And where's the, where is the accountability for all this? And right. it's, there is none. And who's, who's, 
who's doing it? No one's keeping it in check. And ultimately they learn a lesson the hard way. Right. Well, and, and in this story, and perhaps this is another good takeaway, um, meaning, meaning is found in the taking on of more responsibility. You know, in the case of uh, Dr. Grant, he jumped out of the car through the flare, saved the kids, and, and he transformed as an individual and found, found something more rewarding to live for than even digging up bones. So there's this, it's in that same scene where he's falling asleep with the two kids up in the tree and he drops the, drops the claw. He, uh, the kid asks him, so what are you going to do now that you don't have to dig up bones anymore? He, mm-hmm. goes, he, you know, he goes, I don't know. Yeah, he's not really sure. But there's this implication that maybe he'll settle down and have kids. Yeah. Like he's starting to come around to this idea that he's maybe, found his humanity. Yeah. He's well, found... he's found something more worthwhile, more meaningful than even digging up bones. Yeah. Even these dinosaurs that he loves so right. much. You know, he's found something better. I mean, he's going to have a family, whatever. Right. And, uh, and, and so there, and that sort of drives him through the rest of the story. I mean, he, he, he's right with those kids the whole rest of the way, doing everything he can to keep them alive. And, uh, and that sort of endears him to Sadler. And then their relationship has a chance to progress, which for whatever reason, they decide it not doesn't. to progress it in the movies. I don't know why. I always felt like the that biggest was weird. disappointment <laughs> ever. Right. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen Jurassic Park 3. But the idea, I think that that, that is the main transformation of his character is, is at the point of him choosing to take more responsibility. And so as, as maybe a takeaway for myself is that I shouldn't be so afraid to take on responsibility when it hits me in the face that that's what needs to happen. Because even though it may be stinky and messy and uncomfortable and hard, uh, it's more worthwhile in the end. Right. I, I really see myself relating, especially since we went the, the uh, deep dive on uh, Ian Malcolm's character. I really relate with his character that I've created in my mind for who he is and his backstories. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was probably just a comedic kind of foil guy that they threw in there because mm-hmm. he makes great, great, great film. Good lines. Um, and they gave him, yeah, all the, all the best lines and stuff. Right. But, um, but for me personally, I look kind of look at his story and I think as someone who has trouble uh, trouble speaking up mm-hmm. about what I do observe in the world, um, how the cautionary tale of if I just let chaos, if I just let everyone like... If you disengage. Yeah, and I just give up and I just decide eh, it's not worth saying anything, it's not worth trying anything. And even if there's some truth of I can't control this, um and so why try Mm -hmm. like there's some truth to that that that's a cautionary tale to me is that um ultimately i'm still called to called um i'm still (laughs) accountable for for what i sort of morally obligated yeah and and the world is better when i'm engaging in it in a in a way that is you know like speaking up and saying my perspective and if more people and, and holding that accountability too it's not just speaking up because that's what ian malcolm did the whole time sacrificially too to some degree yeah it is it, you do have to put you yourself on the line you got to put your your whatever it is your comfort on the line to say what you have to say to make these other people feel uncomfortable and you're holding people in check by being honest and you're also saying 
if you're not going to be the giving up and just making sarcastic quips type person, <laughs> you're also saying that, well, if we don't proceed in this direction or if you choose to keep doing this that I see as destructive and bad, I'm going to walk away or I'm going to mm. um, find a way to make make you accountable or at least myself i can walk away and have the responsibility and know that i did the best that i could to uh bring attention to the issue right rather than getting sucked in and ending up eaten for someone else's mistake right <laughs> no offense i don't want that right. i don't want that at all right. and i i don't want that to happen to other people mm -hmm. like um to an extent everyone there what happened was all of their fault. Yeah, everyone participated that to some degree. To some degree, and, and some were more at fault than others. Um, but to some degree, they all they all agreed. <laughs> they all agreed. And yeah. that was something... They all implicitly went along with something that they're, deep down they kind of realized wasn't a good idea. Yeah, and I think that the movie does kind of do, or the story does a little bit of, uh, punishment and reward to their characters for the ones that um, are the most responsible, except for Hammond for some reason, but for the ones who <laughs> are most responsible, they're the ones who get the nastiest treatments. Um, but everyone gets a little thrashed. and, right. and No one makes it out unscathed right. except for Hammond, and we agree that he probably should have not made it out unscathed. Yeah. And in the book, he doesn't. He doesn't. No, he he. He dies. He gets eaten. Yep. Spoiler alert. Um, in the book, to the scientist um, who, Dr. Wu. Dr. Wu, yeah. Dr. Wu, he gets his intestines ripped out by velociraptors while he's alive. Ah. Yes, but it is after he, a heroic, like an attempt at hero, hero, heroism. Attempt at heroism. He's trying to save, I think it might have been Dr. Sattler or someone. Um, he kind of like wakes up and realizes he needs to do something. And so he chooses, kind of like Ian Malcolm, he chooses the, to do something heroic. And that gets him in a spot where he gets surrounded by, I think he uses himself as bait. But that's also him putting himself out on the line. And, and you know, accountability starts somewhere. And, and for him, that's where it was. And that meant that he had to put himself out there to get yeah, his intestines. For his faults. Ripped out by Velociraptors. <laughs> Such a vivid image. I read that Oof. book a long time ago. Yeah, Still I can't there. remember. That was a long time ago. We've been talking for a while. Yeah. But uh, that was good. It was a good conversation. There's a lot to it. So your kind of takeaway was to uh, uh, to know when to not give up and be willing to speak up when, when you're aware of something that maybe not everyone else is and that and it's worth doing and, and uh, maybe there's some, some obligation to do that. Yeah, and to, I think it's more don't give into the cynicism, Alina. Mm, yeah. Don't don't, don't do it. Yeah. It's tempting. I want to be that that person because I am such a conflict avoider. I would rather just be a person making like, you know, like grumble, grumble, making the quips on the side, but not not sticking myself mm -hmm. out and engaging in it in any way. And I'm still just still a participant. And it maybe it makes me feel better to get it out and say it like whatever the cynicism the sarcastic joke or um vent to my husband later on you know whatever it is that helps me feel better 
but actually doesn't even help the situation, doesn't bring any accountability, and doesn't even help me grow as a person. Um, right. Yeah. The only way you get to grow as a person is by engaging in yeah. whatever's going on and taking responsibility to whatever degree you can. And uh, and that's the only way that we're going to solve the problem. Like right. we're, we're not going to prevent people from dying in a chaos will still unfold. Yeah. Yeah. But I can not just be the voice of wisdom, but be give people that. Here's a path to choose out of your chaos, at least right now. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really good. That's a good. That's a great takeaway. Um, I think for me, the the big one I need to think about, and and it's actually one of the goals of this podcast is to explore ethics, mm-hmm. um, explore ethics in in film and in literature with other people. And, and that's one of the ways I'm trying to take more responsibility. So it's a little bit of an encouragement mm-hmm. to me. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an allegorical example of the sorts of catastrophes that can unfold when people ignore the ethics of their decisions. Right. Despite good intentions, uh, despite the best of intentions. Right. Absolutely. And, and so it's a little bit of a, a, it's a good reminder to me that, look, the world is still at stake. Mm-hmm. And while me, well, Josiah, you might not be an ethical uh, expert right now, mm-hmm. but what you're, what I'm doing to in, in trying to grow and learn and gain understanding in that arena, while also spreading these ideas and, and encouraging other people to think about the ethics of their decisions, um, while that that's still a worthwhile goal, because who knows, who knows who I'm going to prevent from doing something dangerous who knows whose thoughts i'm going to stir so that they consider whether or not they should do something once they realize that they can right you've got a little bit of a hammond here right i'm hearing you connect with the hammond character a little bit in the sense of like you really do like get caught up in the the ideas the idea i love new technology i i want to see the 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 boundaries pushed absolutely but at the same time i understand that it's our our very existence is at stake if if we don't push forward with with strong moral grounding right and the shrug well i had good intentions it's not like, enough. what can i say right. it's not no. it's not enough no one's going to care what your intentions were when the world burns none at all and the greatest villains in story are the mm. ones who think that think they're doing they're the right doing thing. the right thing yeah yep. Yep, another Thanos reference there. <laughs> Thanos. He's a great villain. We'll get to him one of these days. I think I've mentioned him in every podcast so far. Yeah. I'm so excited to do You Age need to do it. We'll get it get out there. of your system. Yeah, one of these days. <laughs> I got to find the right person to do it with. But anyway, Alina, thank you for joining me this week. Hopefully fun. we'll get you back here again on some... Uh, I know you've got great things to say about Hamlet, so that's on the list. Ooh. And uh, look forward to talking with you again. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me. Catch you guys later. That's Truth and Fiction. Join us next week. Bye.